3: each.
1: Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to buy
3: now. That's livenation.com slash concertweek to buy now.
0: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.
3: When you think about the
1: future, what kind of technology do you envision?
2: Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. You of course are you. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. We have a doozy of an episode for you today, ladies and gentlemen, skeptics and true believers, friends and neighbors. You've heard longtime listeners about something called disclosure and typically in the realm of ufology, which is a fun word to say, and it's tricky to spell. It's just that (laughs) one O after the F. You've heard of this concept if you're at all interested in allegations of extraterrestrial contact, rumors of government involvement with extraterrestrial or extradimensional entities, right? It's the idea that one or more world governments or corporations have not only discovered evidence of some otherworldly or other dimensional being, but they have also perhaps had contact with these creatures or used technology that they have found. And for one reason or another, and the reasons can vary, wanted to keep it a secret.
1: Yeah, we've been fascinated by the disclosure movement and the UFO issue in general for years and years and years. You may take your mind back to May of 2001 when at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., a group of 20 government witnesses. These are military, ex-military usually, who got together and they described a decades-long conspiracy to cover up visitation of extraterrestrials to Earth. And they discussed how the U.S. government was spending 40 to $80 billion a year through black budget projects to fund this thing. But why, Matt? Why would they do
2: that? Why would they try to cover up the aliens? Because, you know, it's just sort of good to have secrets for funsies. Sure. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, according to these people, they
1: were saying that the government was sitting on alien technology that they had reverse-engineered from A, the Roswell crash in 1947 onward, and that they also could provide unlimited energy to all of Earth's inhabitants, like right now, if they wanted to. And they could have since the 50s, but they were just keeping it to themselves.
3: And we know how the military and the government love to sit on technology and keep it away from us mortals as long as possible. That is a
2: documented fact uh unfortunately it is true that there is uh there is technology hidden from the public or at least technological capacities that have not been publicly explored or commercialized the old joke that you might hear uh, a lot of your military official friends say when they're a couple cups in to their saturday night is you know the old the old trope that the 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 military is about five years ahead, yeah. minimum, technologically, yeah. uh, to what we see in the commercial sphere. 2001, why are we talking about it?
1: Well, that date, May 9th, 2001, when that press conference occurred, that could be seen and probably is seen by most people as the very beginning of the global disclosure movement. And it was headed by a gentleman named Stephen Greer. Dr. Stephen Greer. That's correct.
2: Yes, Dr. Stephen M. Greer, uh, the most prominent and most well-known proponent of this disclosure concept, the founder of the project, as Matt mentioned. We've received so many emails, tweets, messages, messages scrawled in blood in darkened bathroom mirrors, etc. cetera, you know, however you choose to contact us about this concept of, of disclosure. And it touches on many things. It touches on the exploration of space. It touches on the classification of secrets and it touches on the, the alleged future of energy. So we went to the primary source. And in today's episode, we interview Dr. Stephen Greer. Uh, he also has a follow-up. And in this interview, we stick to the rules of engagement for stuff they don't want you to know. And what that means in this case is that we never have on this show, we never will on this show, tell you what to believe. What we attempt instead is to present to you the most current and the most prescient evolution of the disclosure concept. Uh, Dr. Stephen Greer is the leader in this field, and he is on the bleeding edge of this pursuit.
1: So prepare yourselves. Keep an open mind. There's going to be so much stuff. You're going to be on your computer for several hours after this. And we were lucky enough to get an early
3: look at Dr. Greer's film that's coming out this month called Unacknowledged, where he gets some pretty – Intense interview subjects in the form of former retired high-level government officials who have a lot of very interesting things to say about the UFO phenomenon and our current government and our country's involvement with it. Um, And, you know, this is there's a lot to unpack here. Um, And like Ben was saying, what we always try to do is present the facts, present, you know, what people are saying in the communities surrounding various conspiracy theories and such. And here we do nothing less than that. We let Dr. Greer speak for himself and for his movement and his beliefs, and we try not to interject. But there are some things in this interview that we don't necessarily agree with wholeheartedly, but we did not want to deprive this uh, very interesting man the opportunity to present his views uninhibited.
2: And with that, what say you gentlemen, shall we?
1: So, Dr. Greer, in another life, so to speak, you were a physician. You were the director of a medical facility. Right. What made you decide to give up the life of a doctor and pursue this UFO issue full time?
4: Yeah, well, I'm actually still a physician and licensed and all of that. However, you know, I left my practice as the chairman of emergency medicine in North Carolina because I realized that nobody was really addressing the central problem around the secrecy of UFOs and particularly the technologies that go with them. And in about 1993, when I briefed the sitting director of the CIA for Bill Clinton, it became quite clear to me that there was another larger problem, and that is that the programs related to UFOs were being run illegally and unconstitutionally because the CIA director and the president were being denied access to them. This was something that was so shocking to me that I still was working as a medical doctor and I was sort of shoveling back and forth from North Carolina up to Washington, D.C. And at first I thought perhaps that was an anomaly of the CIA director, that particular one, or this particular president. And then I started doing briefings in the uh, later after that with members of the Senate Intelligence Committee Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Wilson, and also the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the position that uh, General Flynn had before he was fired, and it was General Patrick Hughes. And all of these people were also in a situation where they knew there were programs involving billions of dollars going on related to UFOs, but when they made a specific inquiry about them were denied access. And that's when I realized we are in a very dangerous situation legally uh, and also from a security point of view. And that the reason these lies and cover ups are happening is because there is a if you want to call it the deep national security state does not want the public to know that we already have technologies that would get us completely off of fossil fuels. So I realized that this was really all about macroeconomic power and money. And that is when I left my medical career. I realized that this was such a huge issue. It wasn't just any longer, you know, gosh, are there ETs out there and isn't this interesting? And let's go look at a UFO. It became something where I realized that the course of the future of our civilization was being hijacked by a group of global elitists who were, at their core, fascist. Just
3: to backtrack slightly a little bit more on your background, it occurs to me that a medical doctor, a physician, that is a world of codified procedures and you know things that you go to medical school and learn very specific methods for doing things that are established as part of Western medicine. I know that you also practice transcendental meditation, and I'm wondering if you moved away more from this more codified medical background toward kind of thinking outside the box, for lack of a better term, Term. What exactly guided you on that path, other than what you just described? Was there something? Was there something that clicked for you that made you feel like you wanted to kind of venture out beyond into the unknown?
4: Well, sure. I mean, thank goodness I, I was a student of meditation and things of that before I went to medical school. Um, uh, you know, because that's all hard sciences, not just how to fight procedures. I mean, you've got to know quantitative analysis and physics and molecular biology and all the stuff and organic chemistry. It was really great that I had done that because it gave me a foundation for thinking outside the box, number one, but also experientially understanding how interstellar civilizations are using advanced electronic systems that interface with thought, and consciousness. And this gets into some very controversial concepts, which are really outside the box to the average listener, I guess. But I can assure you they're not using an iPhone that's traveling at the (laughs) speed of light to go, uh, you know, a million light years across, you know, from one galaxy to another. But they take a million years at the speed of light to do so. So you're, you're talking about technologies that are interfacing with fields, Uh, You could say them other dimensions of energy, but that are quantifiable. It's not like some, you know, psychic sitting around with a turban on. But my understanding of meditation and consciousness and what's called non-locality in physics and non-locality of consciousness, meaning that the mind is not limited to space and time, that that knowledge helped bridge the mystery of how these ET civilizations appear and disappear and communicate. So that actually served me very well.
3: $25 each
1: visit LiveNation.com concertweek slash to buy now. That's LiveNation.com
3: concertweek slash to buy now.
1: Snag a job
3: is where
5: America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
0: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.
6: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills.
2: You no know, that's a, a fantastic connection that you've made Dr Greer which I think is going to be astonishing to our audience the idea of this interrelationship between cognition consciousness and more highly evolved forms of technology you know it reminds me of that Arthur C Clarke quote about uh, after a certain threshold of technology everything like might seem like magic to some people which you know sometimes i think people become comfortable with the stuff that they feel is established, even though, as you have pointed out numerous times, it's really strange that smartphones exist and that some areas of technology are so much more sophisticated and advanced than others. And and it does make people question the concept of secrecy. And in full disclosure, we've studied the disclosure project fairly extensively in the past of this show and it's something that our audience is very much interested in and since you are the founder of the disclosure project we were wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about what the disclosure project is and how it came to be especially regarding the technology we've mentioned earlier
4: yes and th- you know this is one of the central themes of the documentary that's just come out, by the way, we're now number one on uh, iTunes for documentaries as of right now. Um, and Unacknowledged is also a book that has more information in it that's available at Amazon and everywhere else. Those, the, the book and the movie, Unacknowledged, are really about my journey discovering what the unacknowledged special access projects, which is the proper name for these very classified projects, are. And the reason the Disclosure Project happened was an accident of history in the sense that my real intention was to simply focus on a an interplanetary diplomatic team that would make peaceful contact with these civilizations using what's been called, in which I coined the CE5 initiative, Close Encounters of the Fifth Nine, where we go out and make this sort of contact. But... Early on in 1992, when we were doing some experiments with this in Florida, we had four extraterrestrial craft show up. It got filmed with very poor quality high cameras back then. It was on the front page of the Pensacola paper, and there were two Air Force colonels and pilots in in the uh, training group of about 50 people. This got kicked up and picked up by the uh, head of Army Intelligence and people at various other three-letter agencies and they approached me within 30 days in 1992. And some of them were very hostile to what we were doing and threatening. Others, however, were very supportive and said that, yes, it's high time that this subject be uh, declassified and the public know the truth. Uh, and we want to help you. So it that's kind of how the contact expeditions I was leading led to the early stages of what in 1993 became known as, if you go to the Clinton presidential library, Project Starlight. And that was a code name for a briefing process that we put together. Um, uh, We put together the best available evidence of the best cases and images and everything from around the world and government documents to provide to the president and to members of Congress and to the UN Secretary General Boutros-Ghali at the time and other people and to try to create a consensus to end the secrecy. But by 1997, it was quite clear to me that no one in Congress and no one in the White House was going to take that task on. And in fact, one of Bill Clinton's friends who used to stay with him at the White House came to my home and said, uh, you know, Dr. Greer, they, they very much agree with what you're recommending uh, in the brief you put together uh, that this subject be declassified. But we're concerned that if the president does this, he will end up like Jack Kennedy. And I start laughing. I think this is completely nonsense. And then he says, no, we're not joking. And I said, well, what the hell do you want me to do? I'm a doctor in an emergency department doing this just as sort of an interest. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we think you should do it. And I turned to him and I said, yeah, what you're saying is I'm expendable and the president isn't. And he looked (laughs) me straight in the eye and he said, yes, you're expendable and the president isn't. So I I always joke that I'm the throwaway person. I can throw away my career, I can throw away my life, I can give you know blood and treasure. That'd matter because these hideous politicians and money whores that run Wall Street and Washington, they're not gonna stick their necks out. So, you know, what I realized is that there's no courage left in our leadership and that we the people have to manifest that courage. And that's how the disclosure project got put together is when I realized that no one in the official world of Washington or Paris or London, and I went all over the world mm-hmm. meeting with uh, officials in governments all over the world. Nobody wanted to take this issue on. So I decided, well, we the people ought to do it. And so began the disclosure process.
3: Well, speaking of idiot politicians, i um, James Comey was fired yesterday. Uh, I'm just going to use that as a as a segue. I'm not really going to go into detail there, um, but I'm wondering we're wondering when someone like vacates or gets booted from a high level intelligence position like that. Do you think they are leaving with state secrets that they have actual information about some of the things that you're describing that they try to keep under wraps?
4: Well, some do and some don't, and this is something that I make very clear in, in both the movie Unacknowledged and the book is that whether you're in the loop, let's call it, of these very classified unacknowledged special access projects on this issue has very much less to do with your rank and position than with your, let's call it psychological makeup and will, whether or not you're willing to go along with a fascist secret agenda. So if you're, if you are not, then you're not going to be told anything like like the CIA director Woolsey uh, or like General Patrick Hughes, who's head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Now, here you have head of the CIA, head of the DIA, both being lied to. Now, have there been CIA directors who know or FBI directors who know? Absolutely, but those are people who have at their core value system, let's talk about your value system, a fascist view of the world where the elite should have this power and the rest of us are basically slaves on their authoritarian plantation. So whether or not Jim Comey was read into these projects or not, I honestly do not know. He's probably aware of the issue. I never briefed him. Um, I know the presidents that have been around since 1993, i.e. President Clinton onwards, do know because I have provided briefing materials for them and their senior staff. However, them knowing about the issue from a source like myself who has no official standing and being able to have access control are two very different things and this is that this is where the public is very confused on how you want to talk about how things really work it's how things really don't work so in washington let's talk about dysfunction on a massive scale for example when i briefed Uh, Admiral Tom Wilson, who was J2, the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And about this time of year in 1997, 20 years ago, I had Edgar Mitchell with me. I had all these other people who were military whistleblowers who had information. And I had sent to him, this Admiral, a briefing paper prior to the meeting. In that document, and this is in the movie, by the way, and in the book, was a National Reconnaissance Office document from Nellis Air Force Base, a security warning. And in it was the distribution list of all the top secret, unacknowledged special uh, projects that were current as of that time in early 1990s, 91. And I got this document. It's authentic. It's not been declassified. And it's in the book and it's in the movie. You can go see it now. This admiral recognized one of those compartments, and so he contacted them and said, I am Admiral Tom Wilson. I'm the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I want to be read into or briefed on this project. And he was told, sir, you don't have a need to know. Now, everyone listening needs to have that sink in. This is the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Pentagon. And he said, (laughs) he said, God damn it. How can I not have a need to know? I'm the head of intelligence for the Joint Staff, and they said, "Sir, we will not discuss this with you further," and hung up and blocked. So, by the time Edgar Mitchell and I got to this stand-up briefing that I was doing at the Pentagon, this admiral was both furious and terrified because he realized that there really was a sort of subterranean, literally and, and metaphorically. Uh, covert programs that that were running off out of his control and were willing to deny him access, notwithstanding his responsibilities and high position. So now, have there been people in his exact same position at the Pentagon who did know? Absolutely, because those were people who came up through the system and were tested to see if they would go along with illegal programs, criminal enterprises, and a fascist long-term agenda. And that is the distinguishing mark between people who are in the system and out of the system. Now, it's more complicated. There are people who have tried to defect from that system, such as CIA Director Bill Colby, Mm -hmm. who in the the mid-90s or so wanted to provide for us a zero-point energy free energy device, which is at the heart of the energy system of a UFO or any other thing that's going to be running through space. And it would run your house forever with no energy bill and no pollution. He was going to give us uh, some seed funding of around $50 million in this device so we could get it out. He was a very old man, and he thought the secrecy had gone on to such a point that it was damaging the future of humanity. But But the week that he was going to meet with a member of my board of directors, they found him floating down the Potomac River, and he had been killed. Now, his son thinks he committed suicide. He did not. And the press just said, oh, it was an, a, a boating accident in a canoe, and well, that's not true either. But the, the fact of the matter is that was a shot fired across the bow of people who were on the inside, like Bill Colby, but who wanted to defect. And so it, it had a chilling effect all through the establishment of covert programs. And, you know, this has, you know, been my life for 25 years, and it, it, a lot of it's not pretty, but it, this is, You know, this is not conspiracy theory stuff. This is stuff I have personal knowledge and was very intimately involved with. So this is why I I think the, the film unacknowledged is so important because it explains the architecture of the secrecy and what the reasons are for the secrecy. Because, you know, the majority of the public believe UFOs are real and the government's hiding something. but they don't know how they're hiding it, from whom, and what these unacknowledged special access projects are and how they operate. And more importantly, and this is the 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 hundred trillion dollar question: why it's so secret, and and that that question of why is is the biggest one of all.
2: Yes, yes, sir. We absolutely agree with that question of of you know the the impetus, the motivation. It's it's become increasingly apparent to even the casual uh the casual researcher uh, that. The deep state does exist, and that you know, in multiple instances, of course, most people are probably uh, most familiar with stories about the CIA operating illegally um, abroad in in the interests sometimes of corporations, in the interests sometimes of ideologies. but it brings us to a, another related question uh, that we'd love to hear your take on. Uh, do you believe that the current information age, you know, now that uh, now that the cost of communication is lower than it ever has been, uh, do you believe that that has had an effect on the practice of state secrecy? And if so, uh, what and to what degree?
4: Well, let's talk about conventional state secrecy. Uh, the, the, the sort of thing that Edward Snowden tried to expose, but which, frankly, was prosaic and everyone in the world knew it existed already because what he exposed with prism was really just a later version of what the new york times and others exposed in the early 2000s about the uh, uh, carnivore and echelon and other uh, metadata and intelligence eavesdropping programs of the national security agency and and of course edward snowden was too young to know this and too inexperienced and um Unfortunately, he did not focus on the illegal projects. He focused on ones that were rather, even though they're extraordinarily evil and big brotherist, because they're spying on everyone all the time, um, are rather prosaic. The ones that are that are being run in these unacknowledged special access projects are several generations beyond anything that say Snowden exposed, and deal with technologies that go back now to about 1954 to 1956 when massive breakthroughs occurred in electromagnetic theory and uh, technologies that interface with space-time and also consciousness. So a lot of people have heard about the CIE program on, say, remote viewing, using consciousness to see remote places. That material that's out in the public domain by people like former NSA operative Ed Dames and others is like the kindergarten version. The really advanced stuff was electronic interfaces with consciousness that were developed in the 50s. Now, most people have heard of the MKUltra experiments where they were used in LSD and other things on mind control. What never got exposed in Senator Church's hearings about this, about MKUltra from the CIA, were the electronic systems. So at the core, so when you start talking about national security state and what they can penetrate there's the internet and there's the fact that everyone is as Ben Rich said in the mid 1990s the head of Lockheed Concord he said there are no private conversations anywhere on on earth now whether or not he knew what I'm about to tell you I don't know but one of my military advisors was at the White Oaks Naval facility which is now closed uh, up in Maryland in uh, 1974 and he was uh, read into and saw an electronic system that could target any point in space or time and extract from what's called the white noise of space-time anything that was ever said or done in that volume of space or time, non-locally, not with a wiretap. Now, that was in the, the 70s. There are people I met with who had worked on uh, technologies beyond that but are, uh, of a similar nature In 1956. So I I think that the problem is, is that you're not going to see these stories on The New York Times and and Washington Post, because as one of our witnesses in the book, Unacknowledged and and the film Unacknowledged states, there are bags of cash being carried to senior people in the the, mainstream media uh, who are usually the people who report on national security issues who are really on the payroll of the CIA or of, of the Pentagon or what have you. So, you know, the fourth estate, the media has been so corrupted that it's very hard to get this story out. It, so, But however, the good news is that the internet and things like iTunes and uh, YouTube and what have you have enabled us to get the information out to millions of people and hundreds of millions of people, more so than perhaps now watch CNN. So I think that it It's sort of one of these things where, on the one hand, there are all these uh, corrupt uses of these technologies. But on the other hand, if we're clever, perhaps we can begin to level the playing field a little bit.
1: So uh, with these people who are in mass media, do you think there is a some kind of coordinated effort to get different outlets and let's, e- let's say even scientific establishment groups to purposefully discredit and debunk? the entire UFO issue and any anything else related to it?
4: Well, I don't think I can prove it. I have CIA documents and witness testimony from air force intelligence and other figures. And some of these appear in the book and in the, uh, in the movie that's flat out state that it, it's not, it's there, it, that's not a conspiracy theory. There's no question at all that that's the case. And I've known of this since the early 1990s. So, uh, people are very naive if they think that we still have a truly free press. It's it's a compromised and corrupted big media. Uh, now, recently, there have been more and more stories on quote-unquote aliens. And, of course, there have been a plethora of movies out of Hollywood on the subject, although most of them are xenophobic. And the purpose of that is a desensitization program to let mainstream people know that, that there's something coming Uh, But with the punchline, they're coming to eat us for lunch. I think that, as Douglas (laughs) MacArthur said in 1955, the year I was born, I'm sure you guys weren't alive then, uh, he said, you know, basically World War III will be interplanetary. So, you know, since the 50s, there has been a plan to manage this subject in such a way that when it does come out, it will be hijacked by the buffoonery of the UFO subculture and Hollywood, and also by the xenophobes—the the, the people who are you know all afraid of all things alien—because they want to basically unite the world around a military junta, sort of a fascist military state that engages in a conflict with one or more extraterrestrial civilizations. That's been the agenda since the 50s and 60s, and there's no question at all that that's the case. I mean. Uh, uh, Werner von Braun, on his deathbed, confirmed it. This Air Force Office of Special Investigations uh, officer, uh, Dody, who who did counterintelligence and disinformation programs on UFOs for the Air Force for a decade, has confirmed the existence of this false flag. Uh, and I have dozens of people who are in the national security programs who have confirmed it to me, and that this is this is one of my big concerns with the. Uh, the UFO subculture and, you know, what some people call full disclosure. I right? said, so, well, full disclosure is great. Let's not make it faux, F-A-U-X, disclosure, mm. because there's so much disinformation on this, because we have to begin to ask the, ask the question, who benefits from conflict that's interplanetary? Well, it's the same characters who have benefited from the military and industrial intelligence financial complex since World War II, who are really just modern-day fascists. So we, we have to wonder whose hands are we playing into when we uh, sort of begin to be parroting that narrative a la the movie Independence Day. And I, I think that there is a very clear counterintelligence program out there that has co-opted most of this subject on the Internet and movies, and we have to be very skeptical. Bye. Yeah.
5: So visit Snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. The
1: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign
6: moment right now, wherever you're listening. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a geginian. Available wherever you will get your podcasts. Limited to the availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig for details.
2: Absolutely agree with uh, with with the statement uh, regarding the the elephant in the room uh, for a lot of a a lot of these concepts. And that would be, um, as as you pointed out eloquently, uh, disinformation. So towards the end of
1: unacknowledged, you ask one of the one of the witnesses, somebody that you've interviewed before, I believe uh, Richard Doty. And you're asking him about something called or that you refer to as deceptive indication or warnings projects. And right. we just wanted to see if you could describe for our audience what a, what false I and W is. Like why, what is it and why does it matter?
4: Well, at the Pentagon and in the intelligence community, the IC, uh, a deceptive indication and warning or false I and W uh, indication warning is what pop culture would call a false flag. Uh, For example, the Gulf of Tonkin incident where we exaggerated or perhaps staged the attack on our vessels, ships in the Gulf of Tonkin so that the Congress and the public would be so outraged that President Johnson was stampeded into vastly expanding the Vietnam War to the great enrichment of the war profiteers and the warmongers. Um, that's been done over and over and over again through our history and also throughout the history of the human race, where demagogues and others stagecraft, it's called stagecraft, stage something that then pulls people in emotionally, that then focuses them on the path of war and conflict and division. And I think this is clearly what's going on and And this I began to speak about in the early 1990s, much to the chagrin of most of the other people in in the UFO subculture, um, because it's become sort of a big uh, cottage industry involving millions of dollars, frankly, for people who are you know spouting all manner of stuff. and it's very interesting that not only does Officer Doty, but others that are in in our network and team who are Military officials have confirmed that they have staged, for example, alien abductions and fake alien events to scare people so that people would think that it's ET, but it isn't. They is completely 100% a counterintelligence operation. Now, people say, God, how long have you known about this? I said, well, since 1993 or four, when I was first briefed on this by some men who were inside some of these special operation teams that were staging these events. Now this begins to pull. this, you have to pull It's like the wizard of Oz. If you've ever seen the wizard of Oz, Mm -hmm. where there's this old prudmudge and behind the curtain, pulling all the levers, (laughs) scaring the hell out of Dorothy and everyone else. And you pull the curtain back and there's this old prudmudge and doing all this stuff that becomes lore and becomes accepted as fact, but isn't. And it's really, but to what end? Well. You know, what everyone who has studied history of war, in order for a populace to support a war, you've got to have an enemy. And the way you create an enemy is to demonize whoever it is, whether it's Jews in Germany or whoever it is. And you have to then create enough fear in the minds of the populace that they will pay blood and treasure to go to war. So this is... Uh, this is right out of the playbook of the uh, of history, and it's been done over and over and over and over again. So these false flag operations and counterintelligence programs are, to anyone who understands the system, you know, are very obvious. But to the average person, they're not obvious. For example, you know, even Compaq, who was former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and was Secretary of State for George. W. Bush and Dick Cheney goes to the U.N. with files of stuff saying, oh, we have these weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Bang. A few months later, weeks later, we're, we're in Iraq in a trillion dollar war with hundreds of thousands of people killed, counting the Iraqis. They're humans, too. And it was all nonsense. So this is it's not as if this is ancient history or isn't a matter of historical fact. It is a matter of historical fact. That's happened over and over and over. But the big one, the big one that's still pending, that I think is getting fast-tracked in the last uh, 18 months or so, which is why we made the movie unacknowledged in the book, we're sort of the cosmic Paul Revere here warning people of this, is that it'll be this false flag involving an alien threat, precisely what Werner von Braun warned about and which Douglas MacArthur called for in 1955 when he he stated that uh, World War III uh, will be interplanetary. So those sorts of people who are sociopaths and basically fascists really do want to see the world being able to unite it. You know, remember Ronald Reagan's speech to the United Nations when he said, wouldn't our job of creating world unity and peace be easier if we had a common alien threat to unite again? Oh, yes. You see. Okay, so this is very much like the movie Independence Day. And uh, I tell people that this is how easily the populace is manipulated. We were manipulated into Vietnam. We were manipulated into Iraq. And they're going to try to manipulate us into something much worse. And that's what we have to be careful of. This is one of the reasons why I left my medical career was because I knew that this was afoot 20 years ago, and uh, on the one hand, they're trying to hurl us towards a catastrophic event like this. Uh, on the other hand, they're withholding from the public the technologies that would give us a st- sustainable civilization with free energy and zero point so-called zero point energy where we would never have any pollution or poverty and within a generation, Poverty as we know it on the planet would disappear. Pollution would absolutely disappear. Even the technologies to take ionizing radiation, nuclear waste, exist so that it could be neutralized to inert elements. I know this for a fact. I know the people who've worked on it. So we could have a pristine planet with abundance for everybody uh, on the planet, but we're going to have to fix this central problem. And that's really what the Disclosure Project's been about. And that's what this movie and, and book are all about.
3: So right now we're, we're kind of exploring how this secrecy is kept. Um, let's take a look a little deeper into the secrets themselves. Um, earlier, you mentioned this idea of a technological breakthrough in the 1950s. Um, but where did this technology actually come from?
4: Well, there, there are two, two uh, streams that joined as one after uh, World War II. Uh, one screen was being worked on in the 20s, 30s and 40s by people like T. Townsend Brown and others in Germany that dealt with very high voltage systems that caused mass cancellation, so-called anti-gravity levitation, as well as uh, free energy. Now, they didn't understand zero point energy at that point, but they knew that they could put, you know, X amount of energy in and get a hundred times out of the system. And, and Tesla knew this as well. He called it the infinite energy field. Now, those those were man made discoveries. So as I always tell people the laws of the universe are guess what universal. So human minds can un- un- unravel these mysteries as well as an extraterrestrial mind from another star system. However. Those developments, which were being kept very secret uh, for the same reasons in the 20s, 30s and 40s as today, because it would have upset the Rockefeller clan and the, the centralized uh, industrialists and everything else that everybody, nobody would need them. As J.P. Morgan said to Nikola Tesla, we're not going to let anything come out that we can't put a meter on it and, and get paid and make a profit on. It. So that that stream joined with a very big river. Of research uh, in the post 1945 era and particularly after 1947 to 1955 when we use some very advanced electronics to shoot down but not shoot with a gun but with electromagnetic weapon systems that are so-called scalar or longitudinal they, they move faster than the speed of light to down these craft that crashed at Roswell and at Kingman, Arizona, and multiple other places. Those crafts, some of which were fairly intact, were then studied. And on board those craft were not only energy systems that were extremely advanced, crystalline uh, energy systems that were zero point, but also the propulsion systems that allowed the craft to, to uh, not only float, and levitate and move at tremendous speeds, but also enabled them to, uh, at, at higher frequencies to go quote unquote interdimensional. Now, those technologies were began to be studied in highly classified operations in the 40s and 50s. And that, what knowledge we had from the 20s, 30s, and 40s joined with this treasure trove of technologies which were acquired from extraterrestrial vehicles and by 1954 we had mastered the fundamentals of gravity control I have a senior official the highest-ranking scientist at the Naval Research Labs uh, Richard Foch who was on my team for many years he has since passed away of prostate cancer but he um, had been in the vault uh, and seeing the documentation And in October of 1954, we mastered gravity control. So what I tell people, you look at the world out there and whether it's your power lines or your cars or your trains or your jets or your airplanes or your ships or whatever it is, all of it is from the early 20th century or late 1800s. I mean, 1888 for Mercedes for the internal combustion engine. Uh, Even jets were from the 30s. Rockets were from the 40s. So, you know, SpaceX. It's all junk. All of this junk. Junk, more junk, junk. Everything that has developed since then is in these, are in these unacknowledged special access projects. And it's a shame because, you know, as Ben Rich said, it seems like it will take an act of God to bring them out to benefit humanity. Uh, Ben Rich being the head of the famous Lockheed Skunk Works, secret operations at Lockheed Martin. But, I think this is why, you know, this sort of, you say, well, it takes an act of God. Well, no, it's, us, it's humans working together to do this. Um, you, people are very naive if they think these large corporations and government entities are going to do it for us. We have to do it. And one of our objectives, and has been for a number of years, but we've lacked the financial resources to do it, is to start an independent open source research lab where these technologies, particularly the free energy ones first and maybe later the anti-gravity, um, could be developed independent of any large corporation but would be live streamed on the Internet and open source. But you need millions of dollars to open a high energy uh, physics lab. And uh, we don't have that. We're hoping. Now, if everyone listening to your podcast would go get the book and get the movie, maybe we'd get on the way to having it but, or somebody who wanted to contribute those funds or some, you know, you get 20 people to contribute the funds. So far, no one stepped up to the plate to fund the basic science research that needs to happen. And um, I think people have to understand that just like disclosure is in the hands of we, the people, bringing these technologies forward are in the hands of we, the people. But, but even though we, by right, the, the taxpayers have spent trillions of dollars working on these projects since the forties and fifties, we have had no dividend uh, paid to us. It's all been kept in, the, in, this, kept in this kleptocracy of, of, of elite programs and unacknowledged uh, special access projects, super secret projects. But, we can change that if we want to. I mean, it's not like we need to be sitting around on our hands waiting for the government to do this for us. I, I think people need to understand we, the people, uh, are where the action is, and we have more power than we realize if we would unite around an effort and do it.
1: So, Dr. Greer, can you tell us a little bit more about the Orion Project itself and how close you guys have come to finding some viable way to harness the zero-pointer free energy?
4: Well, the Orion Project is sort of a, a, a sub-project of our seriousdisclosure.com If you go to our website, S-I-R-I-U-S, Disclosure.com. And it's a, a research effort to identify technologies that meet our criteria. So far, we have not seen any technology that exists that meet our criteria that the person is willing to have taken forward. There, now, let me qualify that. There there are technologies out there, but people want to keep it secret because they think it's best to keep it secret, or they've been threatened, or they've had the technology already tied up by it being bought out from under them. For example, I'll give you one great example. The Orion project was very close to acquiring all the Stan Meyer equipment. Stan Meyer invented this car that ran on water, and it was legit. But what people don't understand, the crown jewel of his inheritance, of what he left uh, to his heirs, was a toroidal system, a donut-shaped system that was an over-unity free energy device that had a national security order on it that was slapped on it in the 80s. And he and his brother worked on this, and it was legitimate. Now, our group only had a few hundred thousand dollars, so we couldn't acquire that collection. An engineering group in Michigan did, and I said that if those people keep this secret and don't go public, if, it, if they get it operational, they're all dead men walking. And sure enough, a couple of years later, they got it operational, and their chief funder, uh, a man who is in the British Isles, who's very wealthy, called me up in a panic and said, they're running for their lives. I said, well, of course they are, because they've done everything strategically backwards. They're trying to be like Gollum and Lord with the rings, my precious, my precious ring. Well, guess what? You know, you think you're going to have an invention and make yourself rich? You're going to be dead before you ever get rich. So I told this, this uh, I won't repeat his name on the air, but I said, I will write a strategic memo to you of what they need to do yesterday. And if they do it, they can survive. And if they don't, they're history. Well, it turns out they didn't want to do it because they were wanting to monetize it and get rich quick. And I just confirmed about this last year this time in March uh, of, of 2016 that that entire team has been assassinated and, and terminated. So the problem we've run into isn't that the technologies are impossible to find. It's that the human factor, uh, the greed factor, the ego factor, uh, and the lack of strategic sophistication. And let me let me explain what I mean. You're not dealing with a new iPhone or an app or a software program like you can just crank out a new unicorn billionaire in Silicon Valley every week. You're dealing with a technology that makes a run at the foundation of our entire economics, petrodollar, oil-based, fossil fuel-based, centralized electric grid system. It involves In the aggregate, hundreds of trillions of dollars in in economic impact. You're not going to be able to do that secretively. So people who try to keep the intellectual property secret, the patent secret, people who try to do this in the dark of night and think they're going to be so clever, they're going to outbox the intelligence community or these corporate goons. They are delusional. So what I have said to people is phase one of this is to get one of these devices. We either have to have one handed off to us, or we have to have the funds to do a lab where we can create it ourselves, and we would be able to. Or, and, and, and we then disclose it to the public, open source, no intellectual property, no secrets, and a billion people know it and can build it on their own, and it works. Every engineer at MIT can do it. The second phase, you might be able to monetize it. You might be able to take that basic operating system, let's call it, And create something that will run your computer, create something that will run your house and your heat pump. And then, you know, that's phase two. But everyone is trying to skip phase one, which is, ironically, open source disclosure. And if you if you skip phase one, you're never going to get to to phase two. And, And this is because of the unique strategic risks that attend. Something that is as disruptive. You I know, mean, everyone thinks what's going on in Silicon Valley right now is disruptive. It's not disruptive. That's tinkering around the edges of Alexander Graham Bell's communication devices or Marconi in 1844 sending the first telegram at the at, at the speed of a radio wave. Big deal. This, what I'm talking about now, is truly disruptive. Now we need it. We should have been disrupted with these technologies in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Now we're really running out of time both geophysically and geopolitically. Um, we, we can't really just pass this on for another 50 years to the next generation. So I tell people who are the scientists and technology people working on this, uh, back when we first founded the Orion Project, I didn't have anyone on my team who could turn to a research team who'd put their life's work into doing one of these things and say, hey, you know, here's compensation for your effort. Now, let us take it open source. I do have people on my team who can do that now. If there's something that's legitimate and can be tested independently, reproduced independently, and which they will allow us to massively disclose. That last thing is the big one. Because if it's not massively disclosed, if if it's kept very under wraps and secret, it's going to be the tree that fell in the woods that nobody heard. And I think over the last 50 to 100 years, there have been literally thousands of these technologies. That have come and gone and have been vacuumed up, hoovered up by uh, corporations and the intelligence community to try to keep them secret. I mean, mainstream scientific organizations like the American uh, Federation of American Scientists have stated there's at least 5,135 patents that have been confiscated through the Patent Office, and those are of systems that have gone to patent. I know of many inventors that never got the patent, but they were just quietly working on these technologies and they got a knock on the door or a national security order sent to them, like Stan Meyer did for his toroid system, this donut-shaped free energy magnetic system, and have just disappeared even before they went to the patent process. So there are thousands more. So It's conservative to say there are probably tens of thousands of these that have come and gone. And the reason they have never reached the public is because the people who are the scientists and engineers and the the people funding them don't understand a strategy to get them out to the public. They don't understand the unique strategic threat and what's called the threat matrix that is out there. And this is something that I've spent 27 years studying. Um, all I can do is advise people. So far, no one's taken our advice. They, they all want to sort of be uh, the next Rockefeller of energy and, and try to get rich quick off these things. And I tell people, well, you know what? Let's do this like GitHub or uh, Unix or some of these uh, operating systems that are open source. They can still eventually be monetized and they can still eventually create uh, revenue for your, your group. But don't keep it secret. It's got to be something that it belongs to every man, woman, and child on planet Earth at the beginning. Um, And that's what I'm recommending. So far, no one's taken us up on that offer. And if you guys know anyone who's ready to, you know, they should give me a call yesterday.
1: If you're out there listening and you have a device such as this, uh, you can write to us, conspiracy at com, or you can contact Dr. Greer at...
4: Yeah, our website is seriousdisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S disclosure.com.
3: So there's a part in the film, Unacknowledged, that really struck me when I was watching it, and I, I didn't feel like it was addressed uh, as as deeply as, as I, at least I had questions about. Um, so let me see if you can follow up on this a little bit. There's a part that touches on the possibility that these intelligent beings may not be traveling from distant worlds to visit Earth, but are instead visiting from other dimensions. Um, can you talk a little bit about the uh, multidimensional concept and how it operates, and how maybe that also figures into this idea? idea of a technology that's far more advanced than anything we can wrap our heads around?
4: All interstellar civilizations are trans-dimensional or interdimensional. To go from one star system to another, you have to go beyond the speed of light. When you go through what I call the crossing point of light, you are in other dimensions. Now, there are also intelligences that are interdimensional but are not extraterrestrial. They don't originate on a, as we would describe, physical planet or star system, but they reside in other dimensions. These two things are conflated all the time. And I think that this is, I call it cosmological indigestion because people lack a proper differential diagnosis is what we'd say in medicine. Um, It's a little bit like if someone comes into my ER uh, and they have chest pain and the only diagnosis I have is heart attack. And there are 115 other things that could be dissecting thoracic aneurysm, blah, blah, blah. So what has happened in, in the people looking into this subject is that they have to understand there are extraterrestrial biological entities with extraterrestrial vehicles from other planets and star systems. If they've reached the ability to go beyond the speed of light, they are, by definition, also interdimensional. They're crossing through other dimensions. But people also have experiences with all kinds of weird things that are from other dimensions that are not, quote-unquote, from a physical star system and planet. Does this make sense to you?
1: I see what you're saying there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the concept it, it, it's of... A,
4: it's, a, it's a very important distinction. So... What I what I think that people and I, and I don't want to confuse the audience too much, but basically what I say is all interstellar civilizations are interdimensional, but not all interdimensional beings are extraterrestrial.
1: Gotcha. I think what um, what Noel was getting at was there was a there was a part where they're discussing nuclear weapons and detonating and testing nuclear weapons on Earth, and uh, one one interviewee. Uh, mentions that perhaps we're causing more damage on a higher dimension if you're talking first, second, third, fourth, and higher. Well, and the way it it came up to me was almost as though it were like another
3: timeline where there was a more extreme version of something that we had done in this reality. And the idea of like. Well, yes,
4: and and it's both. It's that, it's those sort of events and the electromagnetic pulse. And then things that aren't normally measured by scientists in nuclear experiments, energies that go—they do then cross interdimensional, and that's what Gordon Crichton was the name of that witness who I personally interviewed at his home prior to his death. He had been a British intelligence and foreign service official um, who, who ironically, uh, knew about this in his official capacities, and then began to publish an old UFO magazine called Flying Saucer Review, which prints. Philip and Prince Charles subscribed to until he stopped publishing. He wow. told me this personally. So um, interesting when Gordon said that it, it, the statement is pregnant with with implications. But basically, what he was saying is that you know if you look at sort of the ancient alien concept, that there's evidence that there have been extraterrestrial civilizations observing or involved with the planet for thousands, perhaps millions of years. But the modern era really got launched when we started detonating atomic and thermonuclear weapons. Why? Well, one may be what he's bringing up, that it may be doing disruptions in dimensions that we're not even aware of yet. Number two, it indicates that we have reached the ability, as we would say in, in, in psychiatry and medicine, where we become a danger to ourselves and others. In other words, we're collectively insane and crazy. Because we have weapons, we have technologies we've developed that have then been weaponized that could terminate all life on Earth, but also could be an existential threat to other civilizations out there. So I think that when we began to play around with these uh, weapons of mass destruction in the 40s and 50s uh, and went from atomic weapons to then hydrogen bombs, which are 100,000 times more uh, damaging, This began to be a very big concern to extraterrestrial civilizations that probably have been observing us for thousands of years and perhaps millions of years. And it's a milestone that a civilization reaches, such as ours, where we have to make a decision. Are we going to live together in peace? with each other or do what Michikaku has called become a level one civilization We're a level zero because we're still fighting and destroying the biosphere, but become a level one civilization that has global peace and is not destroying the environment for us to have a technological society. Or are we gonna stay a level zero civilization where we become not only a threat to all life on earth, but now that we're going into space, are perceived as a potential threat to other star systems and planetary systems.
3: Well, sure. It I seems like these existential threats are such a big part of uh, quote-unquote you know, uh, development and progress as we see it on Earth and in our society. And we're dealing with a whole lot of technologies and things that we're maybe advancing faster than we should without fully considering the implications of what they mean. Things like, you know, nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and like you Mention nuclear weapons. I mean, it, it, is there a sense, on some level, that we may be in danger of being looked at by these civilizations um, as a such an existential threat that we may be in danger of potentially being a target for annihilation because of all of these things that we are doing without fully grasping the um, potential for great harm, not only to our planet, but others?
4: Well, I can't speak to, you know, it depends on what we do in the future, but I can say if you look at the past 75 years or so, 70 years um, since the 40s, we, we, we are viewed as a threat. But if they had that as their main operating uh, philosophy, let's call it, there would have been no question we would have been stood down in 1945. Um, but the re- you know, I, 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 there's an interesting little vignette. I was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base doing a briefing with the uh, colonel and the Air Force intelligence people there in, in the section that hold a lot of the materials from Roswell and elsewhere. And um, the meeting was set up by the uh, head of intelligence for the joint staff, uh, who ordered the head of the Air Force to make it happen, and they were not happy about it. Um, but the man asked me, the colonel asked me, well, what if these civilizations are a threat to us? I said, I think it's the other way around. We are viewed as a threat to ourselves and to them potentially, and that we need to figure out how to live peacefully and go into space peacefully, uh, or it could be problematic. And the the intelligence officer, the civilian, was writing furiously as as I was speaking, answering the colonel's question. And one of the things I said is that if that was really their intent and they were by nature that hostile, it would have been point, set, match, and over uh, in uh, August of 1945 when we dropped that first atomic weapon. I think that, you know, I, I said the fact that we're still breathing the free air of Earth, Doing all the stupid things that we are doing as a civilization, destroying the biosphere, endless wars, weapons of mass destruction, shows how amazingly restrained they are. Because you're dealing with civilizations that are hundreds of thousands to millions of years or more developed than we are. So being able to sort of deal with this problem, you know, what, what the human situation would be very simple. The fact that they haven't is direct evidence that they are not that way by nature. However, now this is the big however, if we were to reach the point that we would be going out into space more and more as a threat to them or to other peaceful planets that have reached level one or level two or level three, levels of enlightened civilizations, that could change. So I I think that this is why, this is another reason why disclosure is so important And calmer heads need to prevail. And we have to figure out how are we going to live on this planet together in peace? And how are we going to go out into space peacefully? And that it's interesting. There's really one possible long-term future. And that's one of what I call universal peace. Not only peace on Earth, but peace in space. And anything short of that is annihilation. So I think that, you know, we have a choice to make. Do we want to choose annihilation? Mm Or do we want to choose going forward for thousands of years as a peaceful and enlightened civilization? I I think that is the big choice that every man, woman, and child on Earth in 2017 is facing.
2: You know, Dr. Greer, I love that you point that out because this is anticipating one of the biggest questions we wanted to ask, which is uh, future-oriented there. What is the... uh, you know, what do you see if we were speculating over the next, uh, let's say, short term, the next five years? Are there any milestones that the audience uh, should be on the lookout for?
4: I think, number one, the audience needs to become activist. So if, for example, I'm going to be on coast to coast on Friday, they might have five million people listening. If each of those people got the book and the film or even went to our site and made a donation we'd be able to open the energy lab this year and a lot of people want to be entertained with shock and dribble on this subject what i think people need to begin to understand is that that the the passivity of sitting around looking at boob tube youtube and other things and just consuming the latest sensational thing on gaia tv or elsewhere really needs to be, get transformed into genuine activism. Um, and I think people need to begin to, you know, walk the walk on this. So I would say that that's what people need to start asking themselves. And that's the first thing. The second thing is things that you would be concerned about in the future are things that I've observed in the last 18 months. And that is a ratcheting up of uh, books, articles, and Figures going out into the public domain, um, sort of presenting this sort of fierce threat, alien threat that Werner von Braun in 1974 warned about that would be a complete lie and a hoax. Um, And I think that that is quickening, that the pace of that is quickening. So I'm concerned that a disclosure will happen that serves the agenda of those who kept this secret. And I wrote a paper in the 90s called When Disclosure serves secrecy. It's on our website on seriousdisclosure.com. I recommend people read it. And it's an analysis of how disclosure could be hijacked and turned into um, a sort of a fear fest of everything alien that would, of course, benefit the same war mongering and war profiteering fascists that have been ruling the planet since World War Two. So I think that the public needs to be very aware that that's being fast-tracked. I made this film because the heads up I've gotten is that that is being fast track, and we need to do something to avert that
2: disaster. Well said Dr. Greer. We want to uh want to thank you so very much for taking the time to speak with us today and for everyone out there listening if you would like to learn more about the disclosure project the future of government secrecy and all of the other things that have been treated as rumors in the mainstream media then do check out Unacknowledged: Next A of the World's Greatest Secret. It's available now on iTunes, Amazon, Vimeo, Google Play and Voodoo it will be on demand on May 23rd. That's a wild ride, huh?
1: Yes, it certainly is. Fascinating. I'm going to spend hours and hours just doing more research on a lot of the topics he brought up. Oh, he up. will. Trust me, folks. Well, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, we created just a little insider baseball here. We created a document that was fairly long when we were looking at Dr. Greer and all of the stuff that they cover in Unacknowledged. Like I said, a lot to unpack Mm. on
3: many, many levels.
1: Yes. Uh, I just want to say right here, uh, right after this. You may be, you may be familiar with Sirius, a uh, serious disclosure, which was the previous documentary that Stephen mm-hmm. Greer produced. Uh, I know I watched that. I think, I think we watched that mm-hmm. back in the day and, um, back in the day, it was 2013. But anyway, <laughs> that one focused a lot on, uh, what Dr. Greer spoke about with contacting aliens mm-hmm. with the close encounters of the fifth kind mm-hmm. and unacknowledged was much more about the individual interviews of the Disclosure Project people and that false flag attack that, that he was speaking about at the end of the interview there.
2: Yes, yes, yes. Similar to uh, the concept in the original version of Watchmen. Right? That's right. So one of the things that we're very fortunate to explore with Dr. Greer was the concept of um, – or the nature rather, the mechanism of secrecy and classification Mm -hmm. in the U S government. And we want to be clear that not every government or every state works the same way, especially with regard to the concept of these special access projects. Mm -hmm. That's compartmentalization, right? And so you, you may uh, recall hearing Dr. Greer say that someone was read onto a file or something like that. Uh, we do want to verify for you and confirm that it is, it is absolutely true that the president you vote for, the congressional representative that you, you know, go door to door campaigning for, uh, can easily not know can easily and legally not know something is going on, at least in the case of the U S government. It is very much a left hand. Doesn't know what the right hand is doing situation. And additionally, Dr. Greer did bring up one of my favorite facts, which is so crazy and so often ignored. And so true, this government, the U S government, does have the right when you apply for a patent. So let's say Matt invents. What's something amazing? Just free energy, a widget, a widget that makes free energy. Okay, Matt invents a free energy widget. All right, perfect. So Matt invents a free energy widget and he files a patent. If it is seen as something that could be contradicting the interest of national security, then not only can that patent be suppressed, not only will he lose ownership of it, but he will also get uh, hit with a gag order, which does not allow him to talk about it. This is a real thing that happens. Uh, this, of course, spreads so much fuel to the fire of people who have conspiracies about technological suppression.
3: Well, it's one of those things, too, where like what constitutes – a real and present threat to national security that mm-hmm. could be up to some very high level individuals to determine possibly for nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. And like if, just swiping that for their own use.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in that stuff, we have several episodes in the past about specifically those topics. Uh, I think Stan Meyer was brought up. As a, uh, yeah, Stan Meyer was definitely right, brought up. The
2: inventor of the water-powered car, allegedly.
1: Yeah, but what Stephen Greer focused on is that toroidal device that mm-hmm. was like the, the main thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, check out our episodes if you want to learn more about that stuff.
3: And I guess this one ran kind of long, so I think we'll save Shout Out Corner for next time. But uh, do you guys have any final thoughts? I will say that we've been getting some
1: fantastic listener mail.
3: Well, and we're going to cobble those together and do a legit hardcore shout out fest. You guys are hilarious.
2: And not only are you hilarious, you are also prescient and you are the most important part of this show. So this is the end of today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope that you have some opinions or dare I say some evidence or some anecdotes or, Regarding any of the topics that you heard in today's wide ranging interview. You can find Matt, Nolan, and I on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Instagram. You can also check out every episode we've ever done on our website, which is deep breath stuff they don't want you to know.com. If if that doesn't ring your sleigh bell, if that doesn't send your X thirty two in orbit, if you think the whole social media thing is just a bucket of hot beer and bad baloney, and don't want to be a part of it, no worries, friends. You can email us directly. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks
3: dot com.